0: now the book of Colossians. We are taking just a little series here to cover a passage that I missed last year around this time while I was preaching through the book of Colossians. And the Lord's timing is always perfect, isn't it? I just, I just, this is a great series. I'm very excited to preach it. Um, I feel like coming back, I'm coming back to Colossians with kind of a fresh enthusiasm and, uh, and it's called House Rules. It's from Colossians chapter 3 verse 8, verse 18 through Colossians chapter 4 and verse 1. Perhaps I can read that right now for you so you know where we're going to be going in the next six weeks. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Uh, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. One last rule, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So, uh, house rules, and my vision for this is we're going to go over one rule per Sunday over the next six weeks. And at the end, we're going to even make a kind of a poster available for you that has all these house rules, and you can hang that up in your house somewhere. Or who is this series for? Not just mothers and not just fathers and children, because each of these commands has an application for everybody. Children aren't the only people that are supposed to obey. Anyone here exempt from obedience? Everyone is required to obey someone, and so this sermon is gonna, that sermon is going to be for everybody. What about submission? Everyone here has to submit to someone, and so we're going to zero in on the text, but recognize that every one of these rules applies to everyone. So whether you have a traditional family, maybe, maybe you have a mixed family, maybe you don't have children yet, maybe you're single, you're the only one in your home, These rules will all apply to everybody. Maybe these house rules would be something, if you're a business owner, you can hang in your place of work and recognize that this is applicable in whatever sphere of life God has put me. And uh, you'll notice uh, on the bulletin there, we have harvest family house rules. We are a family. And so these rules apply to us in the church here. And if you stick with us over the next six weeks, we're going to make these Posters available to you, and you'll be able to put your family name on the top of that. So instead of Harvest Family House Rules, it could say Bilsky Family House Rules. And I want you to note, um, as we look, obviously this is a dr- directed to wives, husbands, children, fathers, servants, leaders. Um, but if we travel back to the beginning of the, cha- of the uh, book, Colossians chapter 1, we see that all of this is addressed to who? Verse 2 of chapter 1, "...to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae." To the saints, to the faithful brothers and sisters. And so here, even in here, we see this familial terminology being used. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a family. These rules apply to us. We see that it is, applied, uh, it, it is addressed to the saints. A saint is uh, a person who is uh, dedicated to the Lord's service. A consecrated and holy one. That's you. We are all saints in Christ Jesus. You know, the Catholic Church has a pretty high bar for sainthood, and Christ says, if you're in me, you're a saint. And I don't know if the Catholic Church has relaxed their rules on sainthood, but um, there's a whole process to becoming a saint. In the Catholic Church, and you have to be examined, and they have someone that is your advocate, and they examine all of your writings, and then you know the term "devil's advocate" that came from the process of a person becoming a saint, where you would have the devil's advocate would try to to accuse this individual. Usually, they were already passed away, and accuse them of not being worthy of sainthood. In fact, um, Thomas Kempis. They actually exhumed his body to see if he was worthy of being a saint. And this is kind of creepy. They found claw marks, scratch marks on the inside of the coffin and splinters under his fingernails. He was accidentally buried alive. And they concluded that because he was resisting death, he wasn't worthy of being a saint. And so they closed it up and shut the case and he was not allowed to be a saint. But you are a saint because you're in Christ and this is addressed to the saints of the church of god and it's it's a big task that god is asking us to be obedient to this list and we're going to take one rule per sunday as i said but for this first sunday let's consider what, uh, why these rules are necessary what necessitates these rules and what it is that binds these rules together so first why were these rules needed what was going on in the background when paul wrote these house rules first of all in the background we see there's a context of persecution there's a context of persecution we see it in chapter 1 and verse 11 of colossians where he says we see it hinted at here verse 1 verse 11 says may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might "...for all endurance and patience with joy." So Paul is praying that they have endurance and patience. So at the very least, we know things aren't easy for them. Patience is required. Endurance is required. We continue and we look in verse 24 of the same chapter, and Paul says, "...now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions." So here we see at least... In Paul's corner, he has sufferings and afflictions. And we continue on in chapter 4 and look at verse 3. He says, "...at the same time, pray for us also that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison." So Paul is writing these rules from prison and he's not the only one in prison and in verse uh, 10 of the same chapter we see that uh, Aristarchus is in prison as well and then in verse 18 the last verse of the passage he says I Paul write this greeting with my own hand and it's as if he was writing and he heard the chains clinking he said remember my chains and why is this important well because this guy has been imprisoned for his teachings, including his teachings on these house rules that we're going to be looking at for the next six weeks. So he has these house rules right alongside his teaching on the supremacy of Christ and on the right alongside the Gospel itself. So don't minimize these rules. They were important enough for Paul to be serving from prison. And even from prison, he thought this is important enough for the Colossians to know. So don't roll your eyes at these and definitely don't neglect to obey them. Not only is Paul experiencing a context of persecution, but I believe the Colossians themselves are in at least a milieu of persecution as well. Turn with me back to the book of Acts chapter 19 and we're going to kind of get some more background context of what this church was planted in. So in Acts chapter 19, we see in verse 10 that Paul continued for two years in Ephesus after he planted the church. He's continuing to build the church in Ephesus. And verse 10 says, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's where the church of Colossians came from, the Colossae church came from. It emanated out of this region in Ephesus, Ephesus being one of the port cities, Colossae used to be on a major trade route. So in my estimation, Ephesus would have kind kind of been like New York. And Colossae was a little more rural, but still influenced by Ephesus. And the believers in Ephesus, or perhaps even Paul himself, spread out and planted more churches during this two years, Colossae being one of them. But if we look at verses 23 through 34, we see persecution. And in this, we see really kind of an outline of what to expect when persecution comes and remember this is the background that the colossians would have been experiencing let's take a look at at this um uh, this this account of persecution uh that happened and see what we can learn from it first of all look at verse 23 it says about this time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way that's Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. There, These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, that would have been including Colossae, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that God's made without with hands are not God's and there is a danger to this trade of ours. So we see discussion of his business, the workmen, the trades, the wealth. And when... Their source of wealth is threatened. Your persecution will come. He goes on and they, in verses 26, and we'll get there, but in verses 26 through 34, they drag people into the town square. There's all kinds of a ruckus. There's a riot. Why? The deepest motivation, their wealth was threatened. And listen, I just want, I just want you to get a picture, a proper picture of what persecution will look like when it comes to America. Because it's not going to be this romantic view like we see in the Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's not going to be crystal clear unless your headspace is squarely in the mind of Christ. It's, It's not going to be like what we think it will be. When their wealth is threatened, persecution will come and they won't permit you the dignity of one who is persecuted for their deeply held beliefs. No, you will be the monster who took food off their children's plates because you threaten their wealth. Look at verse 27 and 28. There is a danger not only to this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So not only when their source of wealth is threatened will persecution come, but... When that which they worship is challenged and disputed, they will react with fury to destroy you. Just identify what our present culture worships and you will identify for what you will be persecuted. If you threaten what they worship, they will eventually persecute you. And again, they will not allow you the dignity of being persecuted for the for the conviction, the love, the devotion you hold for God. No, you will be persecuted, as this is happening all over the world, you will be persecuted for being an extremist, an enemy of the state, for being a bigot, for being a danger to society. You will be persecuted for denying science. You know what they mean when they say you deny science? No one wants, of course, we don't don't want to be deniers of science. But when they label you a denier of science, all that means is you do not believe their doctrine on gender, on the origins of the world, on the place of man, on the rank of mankind within nature. You deny science means you do not believe their doctrine on what qualifies as human life and not human life. Think about those areas that I just mentioned: um, the origin of the world god told us in genesis in the beginning god created the heaven and the earth that's what god told us so we're going to believe that doctrine what about the the doctrine of um that they they preach in their religion that they falsely claim is science what about uh the sustainability of the world you know, they are sure that we need to get an escape route to Mars because we're going to destroy this planet. And listen, I am all for properly taking care of the planet, but it has gone too far. Um, they believe that humankind does not rank above nature. W- what commanded Adam get in the garden? He said, have, exercise dominion over the earth. That's our doctrine. We need to exercise dominion over the earth and over all the creatures of the earth. They don't want that. They, According to their doctrine, they want nature to have dominion over us. And the sustainability of the world. They're afraid that we're going to destroy the world. I remember a promise from Genesis chapter 8, immediately after the flood, where God made a promise. And it's such an important promise that He put a rainbow in the sky for us always to remember it. And it says this, While the earth remains... Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. That's a promise from God. Their doctrine says otherwise, and if you believe God's promise instead of their doctrine, you're going to be a science denier. What about um, their doctrine on gender? God, again, makes it very clear. God created mankind in His image. In His image, He created him. Man and woman, he created them. That's our doctrine. What about the doctrine of their doctrine of um, what qualifies as human life? According to their doctrine, a baby is not a human life, either in the womb or even just outside the womb, so long as that baby is unwanted. If they are trying to actively destroy that baby and somehow their homicide fails, it's still not a human life that survived. It's just a pre-human growth, virtually a, a, an abscess that needs to be finished and eradicated. They don't recognize it as human life. You know, their doctrine was canonized in legislation in January of 2019 in New York, exactly what I just described and it's it's certainly not a coincidence that in that same week that that legislation was signed another legislation was introduced perhaps you remember it there was a cow named um what was it the cow's name was brianna and it jumped out of a truck that was going to the processing plant it was pregnant and it was loose it caused all kinds of problems And they realized, we can't be slaughtering cows that are pregnant. They actually introduced legislation that would make it illegal to slaughter a cow if that cow was pregnant. The same week they signed the legislation that made it legal to abort babies even if they survived the abortion. How crazy that the cow gets a name, but the babies don't get a name. You know, seven times in Scripture, God named a baby before it was born. I think babies are alive. I think every life deserves to be lived. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5, God says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. That's what our doctrine states. And if you deny it, well, you're a science denier. If you deny their doctrines of origins and gender and nature, for all of this, denying their doctrines, dishonoring their gods, for threatening their wealth. They will rescue your children from your parenting. They will remove the danger of your voice from the square of public discourse. They will inform your company of the blight that is you within their organization that you might be properly excised. For your safety, they will prohibit you from worshiping your God. They will bill you for this courtesy, and should you resist their help, they may even imprison you or re educate you, but they will, not, they, 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 they will not persecute you. You see what I'm saying? This is how it works. You are identified in the public as a bigot, worthy of being removed from society. And you think, um, I'm being paranoid, that I'm being a conspiracy theorist, that that could never happen here. Well, it's already happening from Britain to China. It's happening in Egypt and Qatar and India and Uzbekistan. It's happening in severe degrees. May God help the believers that are in Pakistan, Sudan, North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia. Just because your parents, your American mother and her American father didn't suffer persecution in America, that is is not a reason to believe that your grandkids won't. If we continue in the faith long enough and the society around us continues in the direction they're going, there will be persecution just like there is in nearly every other country around the world. And so we need to be ready. It's coming. Be prepared. Two more observations here from the book of Acts about persecution. Um, First of all, look at confusion ruled the day. Uh, verse 28 says, When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together in the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of uh, the Esiarks, Asi- who were friends of his, sent him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they had even come together. Some of the crowd was prompted by Alexander whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But confusion ruled the day. Listen, there is a lot of confusion in the houses of God today. We have to return to just the pure milk and the solid meat of the word of god because it's only going to get more confusing when persecution happens we cannot get our inf- we cannot let the world the culture around us set the agenda of how we think it has to be this word and notice one last observation here in verse uh, 34 uh, Alexander gets up and he's trying to motion the crowd to get them quiet. But when they recognize that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice: "Great is Artemis of the Ephesians!" They prevented him from defending himself, denied him even a logical and reasonable discourse. They shouted him down with the brute force of brainless chanting. This this is how persecution looks, and we need to be ready. And this groundwork is being laid and has already been laid here in America. In some cases, it's even being implemented. But what we may be facing in time, the Colossians had already experienced. And laid over that groundwork of persecution, Paul says, here's a list of how you should conduct yourselves in your home. See, so this isn't just a little quaint... um, you know, homespun wisdom that you can hang on your laundry room wall. This is serious stuff. As we continue to look, there's two other areas found in the book of Colossians. Let's go back to Colossians. Two other areas. In, is it really 10 o'clock already? My goodness. All right. Well, let's Craig. You know, John MacArthur preaches for like an hour and a half. But I'm not John MacArthur, so we'll try to wrap this up. But we got a lot of good stuff here. Um in, in in the Church of Colossians, there was some other background stuff going on. The background context of the book of Colossians also includes the peril of cultural in, infiltration. The peril of cultural infiltration. In, in um chapter two and verse two it says. Paul's praying that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance. That's the word there assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. And then look down a little further. He says in verse 4 I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So he wanted them to be fully assured because there was outside cultural influences that was trying to delude them. To delude it means to basically impose upon them a false reckoning, see things the way they aren't really. But notice how the utensil that this cultural infiltration comes in to our lives and in our church through plausible arguments. That means that there were arguments that potentially could be true but weren't. Arguments that sound persuasive and enticing but they're false and if all you hear are those arguments they're going to sound pretty reasonable that's why you have to just be inculcated with the word of god you have to feed on it day in and day out you let this define and shape your view of the culture around you because absent of this they're going to be very persuading and they'll infiltrate they're already infiltrating the american church in many homes I talked about identifying what the culture worships. Unfortunately, for much of the church, they worship the same thing that the culture worships. And so to try to to try to remove that influence would be like a culture shock. Um, look at verse 6 of chapter 2. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, Verse 8 here is, a, is a, just an accurate description of cultural infiltration. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental principles of the world and not according to Christ. There In the Colossian culture, there was the peril of cultural infiltration. Also, we see there was a threat of doctrinal shift. Look at chapter 1 and verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul was concerned that there was going to be a doctrinal shift away from the gospel. When I think of the word shift, it's, it's really deceiving because I think, you know what, shift is I'm just moving a little bit like this. We're still going the same direction. I'm just just shifting a little bit. Paul's saying don't shift because you're going to end up in a totally wrong destination. We have to stay true. Keep our bead on the Gospel. And beware of doctrinal shift. We see examples of this doctrinal shift in verse 18 of chapter 2. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. Asceticism is like religious severity, denial of pleasure, austerity we have no no threat of that in America for sure A, asceticism in the christian faith is unheard of in America but look what, they, look what we do see in America, insisting on the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, being puffed up with reason by his sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head, which is Christ. And so we see that on display in the charismatic movement in the new apostolic reformation. We see guys that just are puffed up with knowledge of themselves. They... They, they have extreme reverence for their own catchphrases, and you never see them have the Word of God in their hands. They go on and on about visions and messages that they have from God. They don't spend a lot of time on this, be on guard. We see that in America today. Also, we see uh, legalism. Look at verse um, 21. Well, verse 28. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to all the things that perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. So we see the other extreme of legalism. Uh, A good way to think of legalism is if you define your faith by that which is prohibited, you, you might be a legalist. If you view your faith by everything that you can't do, and be careful not to do those things, that might mean that you are legalistic. And then we see in verse 23, these, things, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence to the flesh. This, this is the state of America today and we have to be a church that's different. And we're not going to be a church that's different if you're not a people that are different. We're not going to be a church that is true to the Word of God if you are not true to the Word of God. Studying the Word of God out on your own, day in, day out, living it, not being a hypocrite, and saying one thing and doing the other. Um, and so, we are on guard against doctrinal shift Um, beware of any church or any religious system or doctrinal persuasion that offers you anything other than Christ. If they offer you your best life now, they're not offering you Christ. If they're offering you wealth and prosperity, they're not offering you Christ. Christ. He is all we have. He is all we need. He is all this church has to offer. And if anyone tries to offer anything additional to Christ, they are yanking Christ out of the Gospel. And they are not a true church. So, laid on top of this background of persecution, and laid on top of this background of cultural infiltration, and laid on top of this background of doctrinal shift, Paul... Has these rules, and and I'm I'm running out of time, so we're just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, the rest of what I was gonna preach today, we're gonna include in the sermon next week. But I just, I want to give you a taste. Let's let's sharpen our focus really quickly to the foreground. We saw the background. Now let's look at the foreground. What what do we have here in the foreground of Ephesians? Quite simply, it's Jesus Christ. In the foreground, you don't have to go far into the book to see. In fact, you see it already in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm coming to you by Jesus Christ. And who is he addressing? He's addressing those who are in Christ. I don't think there's a more Christ-centric epistle in the New Testament than the book of Colossians. And only 18 verses in, he gets to this statement. And here we see the preeminence of Christ. Look what he says in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That means he was the first one resurrected, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent. That means he's first in rank. He is the chief influencer. He is number one. He rose from the dead so that in your life he might be number one. And then everything after this verse, I think verses 19 and 20 is just kind of a brief elaboration on verse 18, but then everything after that is simply where the rubber meets the road on Christ being preeminent in your life. What does that look like? And um, and we're out of time. I'm going to ask our our worship team to come up. I I apologize. I, I don't usually... Preach over, and I, I can't. I don't think I have ever had as much information to still share that I just didn't have time to share it. So I, I apologize for that. Um, and I, um, but I want you to read the book of Colossians this week. And here's here's what I want you to do. I've got a whole list here of where we see the preeminence of Christ in the book of colossians we see it in discipleship we see it in our mission we see it in our redemption we see it in our sanctification just go through it and study it this week and just circle just think through okay here's where i see christ here's christ preeminent here and here and here and here and paul's going through he's just saying everywhere that christ needs to be preeminent in your life and finally he gets to chapter 3 and verse 18 he says with all that in mind here's how you can make sure that Christ is preeminent in your home. And that's where we're going to be going in the next six weeks. I want you to stand. We're going to sing a song. What's the name of this song? Center My Life. This is a great song. This is going to be kind of like the anthem, the theme for this series. We're going to sing it a few more times in the next six weeks, but this is a great song that really captures the drive of what we want to accomplish in this series of house rules. Let's go ahead and worship.